0: Hello, everybody. I am Jason Hobbs, and once again, I am joined by my compatriots, Eric Hoffman. How's it going?
1: Going well. Thanks for asking.
0: <laughs> and Jose Lucario. Jose,
1: hello. How are you doing? It's going
2: well for me as well. Dodging hurricanes, Jose. Yeah, the, about a hundred miles
0: east. Yeah, you're like in the hole of the pan home, of the panhandle, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm right up there where you would hang the pan pretty much. (laughs)
0: All right. So I guess as you guys are well aware,
2: this is Hex Talk. It's Hex Talk. Soon we'll be making another run. Uh, I really was hoping for a drum roll, but that is
0: actually better.
1: Got to mix it up.
0: All right. Since this is such a serious show, we're not going to mess around with uh, what we've been doing in life or uh, games we've been playing other than the game that uh, this show you know, revolves around, which is Forlorn Shores. And we're going to get right into our AARs, which Eric is going to explain what AAR is and uh, what we're talking about here.
1: So an AAR is an after-action report, and um, I guess I picked that up from Army days, and whenever you did something, you'd get together and talk about what went right, what went wrong, etc., And how you can do it better next time. So for our purposes, it's going to be, we talked about in the first episode or the first episode of the reboot that we weren't going to do actual play because I don't like it. And um, (laughs) uh, we're going to do actual play reports, right? So we're going to talk about uh, what happened and specifically try and link uh what happened in the session or sessions in between uh podcasts to to like design or, or or issues that that relate to hex crawl sandboxes open tables kind of the the general topic of the show.
0: And so for those of you who weren't in the army and wear underwear, it's also a debriefing.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome. So it looks like uh our first AAR up is Jose. Tell us about it.
2: Yeah, I ran. Uh, I ran the Southern Forlorn Shores uh, last Monday, and uh, still, no one uh, decided to try to take the arduous trek to the Ziggurat uh, that lies in the desert. So I decided to create a new location, a ruined temple, which I uh, I placed a little bit closer to the the point that they uh, enter the Southern Shores, and I gave them a little uh, rumor that it was there, and they uh, they looked for it and they found it uh a, a hex or two away and uh it was a it was pretty interesting. Uh they they got attacked by some killer bees, some spiders. Uh we found out poison saves suck. Uh so it was it was fun. <laughs> and of course what happened to your uh what happened to your character Jeb. All
0: right. So Jeb has I uh, it's the only character I've had so far in uh Forlorn Shores. And for every session before this that I've played in, he's been affected by his the sickness that he got during the the voyage to the location which was the very very first session and finally uh after our talk (laughs) that he had the juicy fruit which could relieve poisons (laughs) i actually used it and no longer is he affected by whatever uh disease he had i think it was like uh Eric, you were GMing that session. So, what disease did he have exactly?
1: Uh, we called it something different every time. It was scurvy, <laughs> syphilis, scoliosis. I mean, we just <laughs> scoliosis. We went down the line. Yeah, mumps. I think he had mumps at one point.
0: <laughs> and it was a pretty drastic thing because he, I lost like two or three points on every physical stat, and that's not like his stats were fantastic to begin with. So I had negatives on hit points, dex checks, and <laughs> and strength checks. <laughs> until this happened and then he tried to do things and i was almost positive he was going to die uh just because now he was you know back to normal functioning
1: so uh, that i i've thought many times well you're kind of a cowardly player to begin with but <laughs> but that disease probably <laughs> kept jeb alive because he was afraid to do anything so he just he hung around the back of every party and just collected experience for about 6 months
2: and jeb got really lucky too cuz he had all sorts of killer bees all over him and they just could not sting his uh syphilitic ass for X X syphilitic. X X Yeah, yeah. So there you go.
0: He's in his post syphilitic stages there. Uh yeah, it was it was crazy because he was one-on-one with three killer bees and uh survived. All right, so I ran a couple sessions and one of them only had two players. Uh Jose, who
2: was in that session with you? Do you remember? It was uh me and Thaddeus. I believe uh we were both wizards too, and we ended <laughs> up hiring uh, a bunch of henchmen's. Well, not actually too many henchmen's. Maybe two or three man-at-arms, and we just played it very, very careful. And very oh,
1: safe. wow! That sounds like a blast. I'm sorry I missed that. It was a that blast. Sounds awesome.
0: Yeah, because they were two wizards, and they kept on getting turned down by most of the henchmen and everything.
2: So, <laughs> yeah, it was a wizard. Actually, he was an elf, but same difference. Yeah, it was a wizard and an elf. Yeah, and it was it was a struggle. We had to be very, very careful uh, because we were so underpowered. That's
1: great. That is awesome. that was yeah. uh, uh, fun. Wow. And it was
0: a very interesting uh, session in some ways because they obviously didn't want to travel too far to the tumulus or really go exploring very much. So uh, they really were just using our, uh, our hex rules where there's a difference between moving through a hex and actually exploring a hex. And so I made my first roll when they basically in the very hex for the disembarkation point uh, in my, I'm in the Northwest area of the forlorn shores as a GM and, uh, they found a lair. And so then I rolled to see what kind of lair it was. And then it ended up being a uh, giant leeches. And so <laughs> they go moving through the swamp because it's this, uh, Everglades swamp area. I guess, I guess, am I getting too detailed, Eric? What do you think?
1: Oh, no, go ahead.
0: Okay. So anyway, so Honestly, basically I was
1: fading out anyway. <laughs> I know I'm looking at your face
0: and I could just see you glossing over sliding to the floor, <laughs> slowly going down. in the camera.
2: <laughs>
0: So anyway, uh, this made me decide, you know, what is this layer? And, uh, I actually had a map on roll 20 that had like the, this mound in the middle of a swamp that had a dragon skeleton on it. And so then it created all this other stuff that the next session actually went back there. To explore what was going around because they left so quickly and now it's made this layer that has an area beneath it with a little exploration and it's kind of telling a little tale about what my area of the Forlorn Shores has. So they're learning some lore about the people who came before and why this was here. And that's the second session where people went, there were five players, I think, or no, four players. And three of them were killed and only Jose's wizard escaped because of a very, a whole person spell basically is what really did them in.
1: That's
2: great. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I had to, and I, you know, as a wizard, there's not much you can do. So when they got caught, they were like, you need to run. I'm like, okay, bye. And it was (laughs) really just me and a, what, a torchbearer that survived. Yeah. yeah. So it was pretty rough.
1: That really highlights the, uh, one of the, the greatest, features of this kind of a playstyle is that emergent gameplay, right? It's um that wasn't something that you had to spend, you know, that you had in place, you spent hours working on a, a set piece dungeon. It's, that kind of stuff is by far the most fun uh, when it comes up because it's uh not to give too much away about the topic of the show, but it really allows for player agency to develop the world, not only develop the world but also the direction in which it is revealed to the players, right? It's it's really in their hands, and uh, we'll get into a little bit more about about how that all works and, and around that topic later.
0: Yeah, it was really cool. I do have this note in here. I don't know if you guys remember this session. I don't know how many people we had in it, but Matt Jackson was in it, and he had a halfling. You guys were on your way to the tumulus when I was GMing, and he took his halfling into the woods off to the side, and he wanted to use the halfling hide ability to actually sneak up and get closer. Do you remember this at all? There was a session and you guys were kind of like on this strand along the coast. And yeah, I remember this is like a swampy Everglades area. You were on the way to the tumulus and there was some stuff up ahead of you and you weren't sure what it was, like some debris or detritus that had floated in off of a shipwreck or something. And so then you moved up and there ended up being like giant crabs or something up there. And he wanted, he was a halfling and he wanted to use the halfling hide ability basically to move silently and hide in shadows to sneak up there basically. And I basically ruled that, you know, it's not exactly as that. And if you're hiding, then you're really not moving. But what do you guys think? Is that, is that, is that your represent or your interpretation of the rule or not?
1: So, yeah, I actually looked it up and the rules specifically say, um, that they have to remain absolutely quiet and still. Although it is a little bit confusing because it it, it says – well, I'll just read it. Outdoors – okay, this is the BX version, right? So this is just the version of rules that we're playing with. So just for clarification. Uh, Outdoors, halflings are difficult to spot, having the ability to seemingly vanish into woods or underbrush. Halflings have only a 10% chance of being detected in this type of cover. And even in dungeons, there is a one-third chance uh, that a halfling will not be seen in normal light if the character finds some cover, such as shadows, and remains absolutely quiet and still. So the way it's worded is actually – they throw in the quiet and still at the end of the whole description, which I could see how Matt would say, oh, well, in dungeons, they have to remain quiet and still because that's a separate use case, if you will. But, you know, I it's it, it's not clear in the rules. Yeah, you know, coin toss and that's rule uh, rulings, not rules. Right. Which is a. Uh, Tom they jammed a lot of stuff, probably the best that anybody could in the sixty four pages, but everything's not covered right or and that's why you don't get the huge volumes of rules that later editions have, and so that's one of the features of old school play, so you just gotta you gotta pick one and go with it and uh I think you're right either way
0: <laughs> What do you think, Jose? you got anything to add to that
2: to be honest, I would have me personally I would let him uh Hide in shadows and move silently uh, outside, and still move. Although I would limit the speed, you know he couldn't obviously dart around at full speed. But yeah, I would let him. I would let him move slightly because it seems like uh, a halfling in the woods. It feels right to allow him to move at least somewhat. You know what I mean? Uh, rather like Eric mentioned, maybe not in the dungeon, but uh, that's a whole different scenario. So interpretation there um, for me. I'm. I, I would let him do it.
0: Yeah, my knee jerk re- reaction was "screw Matt Jackson, your halfling is going to die," but uh, <laughs> afterwards thinking so about that's it,
1: never the wrong reaction, especially <laughs> when it's a halfling.
0: When it's him, you mean, or just a player in general?
1: <laughs> I said especially when it's a halfling.
0: Yeah, that, exactly. Because I don't even use halflings or elves in my uh, normally in any game that I run.
1: You know how I feel about it is, is unless you're playing a human fighter, I think the world should roll against you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, so that gives you an, an idea of why you all want to play Forlorn Shores with us. <laughs> 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 all right. So it looks like we just have some stats that we're going to go over briefly. Uh, Jose, you want to talk about this a little bit? I'm assuming you put this in here.
2: Uh, the number of players participating in Forlorn Shores. According to Roll20, we have about 14 players that rotate in and out. And it seems like we normally have about three to five players per session, although, like you mentioned, you had two players in one session. And I think in my Monday session, I started with seven players, and then it ended up rolling down to five after Eric's uh, character met his unfortunate demise, and Thaddeus' character did the same.
0: Yeah, and the listeners should note that even though we are GMs sharing the campaign, we also play in each other's when the other GMs run. And we have a lot of fun. I think that there are some things, if I was a player, I would be more player actionary as opposed to reactionary. If I was just playing and not GMing in it, like trying to do more stuff motivation-wise, character motivation-wise. But it works for us, and at least we always know we got two players if all three of us are around. Eric, did you want to... I was thinking that maybe we talked about the character deaths so far. Maybe we should have, like, after in this AAR section... We should just do like a death roll or a toll, like RIP, rip this character. This is how he died. And then people would get some, even though the characters are dead, they would have some kind of, we do have a cemetery on the campaign, but Eric, do you remember who, what characters you killed or how they died?
1: Oh, I can't possibly remember all the characters I killed. I remember my characters who died, which is all of them. Um, (coughs) So I've lost a a wizard to some bullshit in one of Hobbs's uh, games where where these – it was like wraiths and vampires jumped out of the walls on first-level characters – and I think it was a lich and there was no initiative and you just died. That's, that's how I remember it anyway. And <laughs> uh, that was my wizard. And then I just lost my cleric who was almost second level. He almost got that first cure like wound spell. And Jose had, um, I don't know. I just call it the the poison pit. It was like we walked into <laughs> every encounter was save or die poison and and uh poor brother Reese, he actually had two chances with a bonus, and he still failed to save, even when those good cleric saves. So those just the the way things, the way things uh turn out.
2: I'd like to clarify something real quick. When they went up to the ruined temple, they first went into a room and I, I described it as being filled with webs with wrapped-up bodies. Then they went into another room. I said, it's filled with webs. They still went in. Okay, they still went in. So
1: I was not really paying. I was in the back of the uh, with my uh, light lantern and I just I didn't I didn't uh, advocate for uh, decision making there. And that's that's really, you know, as much as we talk about old school play and being smart and how dangerous it is. I mean, we still do a lot of a tremendous amount of dumb things. It's dumb just to be adventuring, honestly. (laughs) Well, and a
2: lot of times we'll be like, you know, we'll be we'll be deliberating over a door or a corridor or some sort of thing in the room. And somebody will finally just say, screw it. I open the door. I flip open the trap. I You know, I run through the room because they want to get it moving. So a lot of times it's almost like you want to just get things going.
1: I call that shadow run syndrome. Uh, (laughs) Every Shadowrun One game I've ever been a part of is three hours of meticulous planning and then somebody getting fed up and saying, Fuck it, I kick in the door. <laughs> yeah.
0: In in our defense, I'd like to say we burnt the webs in the first room and the little spiders were killed. When we tried to do the same thing in the second room, it didn't kill any of the spiders.
2: Fresh web.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they were wet still. They were, they were wet. Were still <laughs> they were still mucusy. <laughs> yeah.
0: And uh we did fine with the spiders, even though we knew they were killer bees in the other room. We had to go and check it out to find the entrance to the dungeon. I advocated
2: we should leave these these are killer bees, let's leave them alone. But no You wait, wait, wait. I I have to I have to take umbrage with your sentence there, because I believe it was your character who climbed up onto the roof and threw the first vial of oil into the roof hole that caused the bees to come out and attack everyone. So I don't know if you were really advocating to leave. Them I home.
0: was, but then everyone else wanted to. And so then we had to do something to get them going. So wink, wink, <laughs> nudge, nudge. Anyway, so that would be RIP brother rice to, uh, Jose's poison pit. Jose, do you got any characters that you want to give a quick eulogy for?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I, I miss brother Reese. Um, but from the spiders, I heard that he was delicious. And uh, then Thaddeus's character, of course, became a, a swollen mess from a killer bee attack. So uh, rest in peace, uh, Thaddeus's character. And of course, your henchman as well died, uh, Beneta, Eric. So um, it's not like you died alone.
1: She was one day away from retirement.
2: She was. She, <laughs> she was ready to go. So on our
0: list, Eric has killed two characters and Jose has uh, killed two characters. And I have no idea how many characters I've killed. All I can remember is the last session that I GM'd, which was uh three characters <laughs> were killed in that one game. That would be uh Brasco's Zard, Morenthal, Pete's uh, fighter, and uh Caleb's fighter, Garrod. That would be Caleb Condrove. And all of them were killed by the uh whole person spell by that uh undead cleric thing. So rest in peace characters. <laughs> we barely knew ye. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't be laughing, I'm sorry no, this is a very respectful moment. All right. So let's jump into that main topic that Eric foreshadowed earlier. Uh, we really kind of thought it would be an interesting and, um, a massive feature of hex crawls as player agency. So as usual, we'll have Eric introduce the topic.
1: All right. So player agency is the topic. Uh, so we were talking, uh, I guess we looked at the questions for the week and that gave us the idea for the topic or gave me since everyone else whiffed on getting the show notes together. And the uh, major feature of the hex crawl sandbox, West March is open table kind of play that we talk about mostly here on hex talk is that players have seemingly, you know, unlimited choices, right? Um, they can go in any direction in a traditional hex crawl uh, in a sandbox that they, they get to the play in it. Right. So there's some things that are there, but they get to build stuff too. And in many different ways. And so, as a play style, you know, we all like that and we've talked a lot on the merits of it, um, but uh, we wanted to riff back and forth on other play styles that might have player agency and and our experience with those and then kind of how to handle it as a GM because it can sometimes be stressful or anxious or people don't really know exactly mechanically how to go about dealing with that. And um, so that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So I guess, I guess I'll start and um, throw out there any other play styles that you guys have encountered that have a lot of player agency like uh, hex crawls and sandboxes?
2: For me personally really I started uh, a lot of my hex crawl uh, escapades with you two guys Uh, before that I did a lot of um, I ran a lot of modules modules most modules don't feature a huge amount of player agency per se a lot of times they're following a series of plot points so for me, this is this has been the most amount of player agency I've really ever given players, and I really like it because I don't have to, I don't have to draw them anywhere. I just put the world out, and then it's up to them to explore it. If they don't want to go anywhere and they just want to explore where they're at, I've got a chart for that. As you build your, as you build your setting, it gets uh, more full, and there's more for them to do, and it makes it. Much easier to run anytime and uh, allow them to go in any direction because you've got more bases covered.
0: Yeah, i uh, I would agree with most of that. I would say I really didn't do. I mean, I've been gaming since for forty years, we'll say, but I can't say that I was really doing hex crawls. Normally, we were just playing an adventure or whatever when I was growing up. And, uh, there was some of it, but usually the GM had a plot or something in mind and that's what the players played through. And they even had that in their mind that let's stay with the plot. The GM is doing. Sometimes there was some going off the rails and cause we're almost kind of talking about railroading versus not railroading. Right. And when I've joined, when I found out about the OSR and started gaming through G plus, uh, RIP G plus. It is <laughs> it uh is where i learned uh, how you could do this other type of play where you do more prep ahead of time and then just let players decide what they want to do. And i don't think uh there's any games other than OSR hex crawl specifically west marches and hex crawl types that are going to have as much player agency. You are going to have uh more player narrative control in some games especially uh, indie games or story games which you love those (laughs) which some people are turning to and i think that's just because they had bad gms growing up so they just wanted to have players have more control Uh, what do you guys think about that of the player agency versus uh narrative player narrative control i mean like you got any thoughts on that eric
1: yeah i think um well i i definitely have thoughts on that (laughs) and i don't like (laughs) if you've listened to an episode of this before you know i'm not real fond of story games um as far as player agency goes the one other thing i'll throw out there is back when i was a youngster we played a lot of marvel superheroes and it was like a very large groups and complicated plots you know, it was like the comic books right all these inner intertwined personal stories and these big things going on but and it seemed like we had a lot of player agency like we could do anything we could end up anywhere in the world or multiverse or whatever but but really what that was and i think unless you have a framework of rules like in a hex crawl sandbox that we talk about a lot here that's really uh, what's called, and I you know, I'm not smart. Um, someone told me this illusionism. And uh, actually Robert Parker and I had a discussion about that at a con a couple of years ago, uh, after playing a game with a really well-known old school, You know, creator of the hobby um, was really what it all was was illusionism, right? It seemed like you had a choice, but guess what? You were going to end up where he wanted you, and that's kind of the way that a lot of people, the GMs that I played with, ran those Marvel superhero games back in the day. Is it seemed like you had a choice, but it was really illusionism, and at the end of the day, you were going to end up here, or it just wasn't going anything was going to happen. And so I think that's what a lot of older uh, in older games, right? That's what it was, And, and unless you have a framework built where there's where there's Consequences and rules that are verisimilitudinous. <laughs> um, I'm sure that's not a word.
0: If it's not, it should be.
1: <laughs> it's yeah, if it's not. It should be. Uh, uh, verisimilitude is a great word. That means the thing makes sense within itself, right? I mean, it's you can't talk about realism in a fantasy game with elves and wizards, but verisimilitude is that while you're playing the game the game makes sense and has a realism within itself in that, you know, the rules are the same and that's key to me to really have player agency because otherwise it's just illusionism and you're just kind of, you know, pretending that the players have a choice in where they go. Now, all of that didn't answer your question at all, but with the indie game story gaming, so you think I would like it is they've super codified the rules of player agency in that, in that your narrative choices, how you can drive and change the narrative are mechanically built into the game. So for instance, like in Torchbearer, I think, or I know Lord of the Rings, um, the One Ring, you like basically spend points or pools or traits of your character to change the actual story.
2: That's a big tenet of Fate Core.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and to me, that's the definition of story. Powered
0: by the apocalypse, all those games allow you to do things like that.
1: Yeah, because it's story and game, right? I mean, the game part of it is the mechanics. The game mechanics actually allow you to drive the story. And I think some people confuse it in the players have, like they say, it's a story game. All the players can like make up the story. Well, that's every role-playing game, right? I mean, the players are the story. But when the actual mechanics of the game allow them to change the narrative or take that power away from the GM, to me, that's a story game. And so, but yeah, I don't know. I just don't <laughs> like it. Um, <laughs> i like the uh i like the idea of it's of it's a uh, of, of the gamification i mean i almost play my d d games almost like board games you know except you have unlimited choice it's like it's kind of like you're playing a dungeon but there's no edge to the board
0: it's like a dungeon game where you have 10 different dungeon boards and you can just decide which one you want to go into
1: right and they're all unlimited
2: I would like to uh, mention when you talked about illusionism, that's exactly kind of the way I feel about it when you're running, uh, the way I'm running my my sandbox here is I'm using illusionism because basically the analogy that I'm thinking of is if you go to like Disney World or if you go to like a, a fair or a park, you know, they have those kiddie rides and it's basically a car that the kid can get in and they can turn the steering wheel and they can drive the car, but the car's on a track. So no matter how much they turn right or how much they turn left, they're still going to end up staying on that track, but they have some wiggle room to go left and right. And that's really how I'm running my sandbox. I've got some kids in a car and I have a track, but the track is hidden. So they could go off the track. I mean, realistically, the players, if they want, they could just go, screw you. We're going to go north. If there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And then I've got to roll and and do like uh, Hobbs did and find a map, put something there, but... If you throw out rumors, if you throw out hints, a lot of times they're going to get in that car and they're going to bump left and right, but they're going to stay on the track and go where you want them to. And that's that illusionism that Eric was alluding to.
0: To me, Eric was actually illusionism. Illusionism would be the same thing as the quantum ogre almost, which means you can check. You have two paths, left or right. You give the players a choice, left or right. But what they don't know is no matter which path they go down, the same thing is going to happen. You have an encounter with an ogre and it doesn't matter which path they go. They're still going to get the that's that is really illusionism and the idea of the quantum ogre. But in sandbox, you always have the choice as a player not to go to the places. So it's not to me, it's not the same thing. There's a big difference between player agency and the quantum ogre, Uh, even though you're kind of right, you're still going to lead them in certain areas that you have finished, right? But we used to play, the first game that we really did this a lot in is Eric's Keep on the Borderlands game. And we would tell him up front, oh, this is where we're going. And then right before the session started, we go, oh no, we're going over here. And so we would always be jumping off that kiddie ride and I don't know, decide leaving Disney World altogether. And we're heading down to, I don't know, whatever, uh, Universal Studios. So (laughs) I don't
2: know. Yeah, the only difference is, among the three of us, I think Eric is always the one that is most <laughs> prepped. So I think we very rarely were able to go so far off the rails where he didn't have anything there for us. Or you could have, like you say, you throw the quantum ogre in and it becomes, it becomes the wall that keeps them from going that direction or it stalls them. Um, we talked about this in a previous episode. If the players want to go somewhere, you can always have a stall tactic. You can put an encounter in the middle, uh, a small dungeon or a small set piece, to delay them if you don't want them going somewhere where you're not ready to have them.
0: All right. So what we're kind of leading into is what Eric also alluded to earlier is this idea of having GM anxiety while you're trying to prep for a game that people can go anywhere. So what we're going to try and do uh, with the time we have left is maybe try and help you get through that anxiety in ways that you can prepare. And uh, we're going to start off with a question from one of the listeners uh, this comes from, uh, the audio dungeon discord, which you're all invited to. Uh, it's uh, Eric Salsweedle, All right, How do you guys handle a known dungeon location in a hex? Does it show up on the map immediately? Do you leave it blank until players explore? So this, in some ways, this doesn't sound like a player agency question to me. It really sounds like a GM anxiety or prep question, but as we get into it, you'll see kind of the player agency leads to the GM anxiety. So what do you think, Eric? Do you want to start off with this? What, I mean, what do you, what you got any answers for Saul's
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is yes, <laughs> right? Um, <it's, laughs> uh, So, so typically, you know, when you're starting one of these games, you want to give a couple of, I mean, I guess if you're really brave, you could just say, you know, you're in a town, where do you want to go? But usually you give some kind of a, a hooks out there, right? Like, all right, there's three known locations of dungeons. That's what I did in, um for my region in Forlorn Shores, there was, Zylarthin's Castle and the Hedge Mage and the Hedge Maze. And I think maybe it was maybe only two. I don't know. Maybe I did another one.
0: You have the red one, but no one wanted to go there yet. You're more difficult place to get to.
1: That's right. Yeah. I don't even know if I have a dungeon there, but anyway. <laughs> Me either. So, uh, and those were known and I put those on the map to begin with. So that naturally drew players. But yeah, I think the big thing is that you have a lot of options, so you can, sometimes you have a dungeon that you know has to be in a certain location, and if the players haven't discovered it yet, and I've got a couple of those too, um, then just, you know, put it there and don't let it be known. So either is fine and appropriate, depending on how, which way, which direction you want to nudge the players in. You know, ultimately, as far as the, the anxiety issue goes, it's, um, I keep, just definitely keep coming back to if you spend the time to prep the the rules and the um, the guidelines for for the wilderness and how to explore and do those encounter tables and make those encounter tables really come alive. And we promised it last time and we're going to have to do it this time is put a link to the template that I'm using in uh, the show notes because uh, you can run multiple sessions of exploration just off of that with the random encounters and it will give your players a direction. Um, the way that it works is things will happen, encounters will come together, they'll be in such a way that it will direct the player agency because they'll be interested, right? They'll get interested in why is this happening? What's going on? um, And then that will lead to, you know, multiple more adventures. And to me, that's the best way to do it. But usually we do want to start with a couple of set pieces that are known just so that players who might not be as adventurous or might not have kind of that as much player agency in their marrow will have a direction to go.
0: Yeah, I think that's a a wonderful advice. And I'd say in some ways, what we're talking about is limiting the edges of the sandbox. Well, we say you can go anywhere like in Kalmata, you're really staying on the island of Kalmata and even more precisely the locations that I've described as places to go to. So Jose, do you think it's, uh, what do you think about that limiting the edges of the sandbox? What do you, I mean, is that something that you would do or how do you normally do it?
2: I I think you have to do it because you know you have to keep the sand in somehow. You have to you have to have a framework in which you can control things and you because you have to have the encounter tables for every you know for every area. You have to have your random stuff. You literally just make it open like that. It makes it very hard to control because now you have to have even more things prepped. I mean, if you let the players get in a boat and head west away from your encounter location, do you have do you have those sort of things prepped? Uh, you probably, you might, you might not. If you're Eric, you probably have it ready. But if you're me <laughs> or Hobbs, you don't, have, you don't have water tables ready. So you have to have a framework to keep the players in or else uh, you're going you're gonna to have a bad time trying to keep track of them. But the way I do mine is I like to have a couple of dungeon pieces uh, where they can go and they know about them and then a couple of small setting counterpieces. So if they go wild, I can throw, I love that quantum ogre term, by the way, uh, if they go in a random direction and I can still provide a a, a fun evening of, uh, dungeoneering.
0: You got any thoughts on that, Eric?
1: Yeah. I think the other thing is like, take a step back and, you know, at at the end of the day, 30,000 feet, not reinventing the wheel. I love all those sayings. Um, you know, it's a (laughs) game, right? So, uh, You know, at the end of the day, don't be a dick. Right. I mean, if you've got your group of guys and, you know, they want to purposely just like, there's nothing there, man. You got like 90 different directions you can go. Don't go that one. Right. And so it's like, yeah, don't twist yourself into a pretzel about anxiety about GMing a sandbox. You know, at the end of the day, it's a game. It's better so you don't break kind of immersion if you if you say up front, like, look, don't go off the edge of the map, right? I mean, there's plenty to do here. If there's a real compelling reason for you to go off the edge of the map, then let's talk about it and we'll plan it for a future session or we'll talk about it at a game. But, you know, there's no reason to be that guy, right? I mean, if there's four dungeons the GM drops hints for you, don't say, I walk, I want to walk off the map, right? I mean, that's just... Dickish. Um... Yeah, it's just being a dick.
2: So, and just going back to Eric's question real quick. So he asked, what do you do with a known dungeon location for him? What do you want to do with it? Do you want them to go? Do you want them to know about it immediately? If you want him to know about it immediately, give them a rumor, put it on the map. So they know where it's at and they know how to get there. Otherwise, if you just want the, if you want that known dungeon location there, put it wherever it's going to be. And you can even just drop a hint. You don't have to put it on the map. You can say, you know, uh, as they're walking through a hex, they find a stone road or whatever uh, that heads north, heads towards your location. That gives them at least a clue that there might be something there. And uh, Eric, uh, we had a discussion on Discord, as you mentioned. He said that would give the players agency if they want to check it out. And and that's kind of the idea is it's there and and you've given them a clue and now they have the agency whether or not they want to explore that dungeon. If you want them to explore it, let them know it's there for sure and put it on the map.
1: Yeah, and the other thing real quick on that is another trick – is does the dungeon have to be there right i try and design most of my dungeons so that they can be placed multiple places and especially if you're playing with like a six mile hex you know you could have a little bit of varying terrain within that hex. so if it has to be you know in a mountain spire unless it has like ten thousand foot peak on a in a ridge you could put it even in a grassland hex and there could be a protrusion right if you want it and you know it's like do you really need the entire six miles around the dungeon i I, very few dungeons i think need that so if you build your dungeon so that they could be placed at least multiple places if not necessarily anywhere this problem solves itself and you can just put it right in the right in the road you know where the as as jose was talking about where the players are going and in fact when i build my random encounter tables one of the possible things that can happen is there's a dungeon here and i have a couple of pre-made small one-page dungeons that could go almost anywhere and sometimes i even then break them up by terrain type i'm like okay, here's the six that could fit into a grassland here's the five that could be in a hilly area and then boom there you go and um and that's awesome player agency right there because you're making the world up as you decide which direction you want to go because i didn't plan for that dungeon to be there you know your decision put that dungeon there and that's awesome
2: And I would like to mention one more thing about this. Sorry, Jason. Um, When he's talking about a six mile. Let's not let him talk the whole. (laughs) I have all these things to say. When you're talking about a six mile hex, just like Eric said, that is a huge amount of space. That is that is a massive amount of space. So, yeah, you could put a a mountain in there. You could put a small forest in there. You could have a small swamp in there. If you look at a map of the United States, for instance, uh, you won't see 90 percent of the rivers that exist in the United States, because they're small, but you're talking about 30, 40, 50, 100 mile rivers that just that don't fit on that scale of map. So you can pretty much put anything in a six mile hex that you want to put in there to make that dungeon work.
0: All right, good. Now I finally get to talk. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I wanted to mention one more
2: thing. I wanted to <laughs> no, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: One thing I wanted to say is when Eric was talking about, you know, the things that you can do or can't do during a session by limiting the thing, he was really talking about session zero in your eye, Eric. So (laughs) he hates that too. And then uh, I wanted to say what my advice is about limiting uh, the hex or limiting the sandbox. So like if you're in a West Marches game, it's automatically limited by... Range from your safe zone. Right. So the area around is where you're going to be until you go. You're not going to go in the beginning of the session way, you know, 100 miles away from your safe zone because it's going to be way too difficult for you. And you know that going in just because of what it is. And then in Forlorn Shores, what we did is we have a ship taking you, you start in an island. And so you have a ship that's only taking you to certain areas. And if you want to go any farther away from those areas, you're going to have to go through the wilderness and try and explore, which is usually more dangerous than just going to the set locations that we've created. So we're limiting the hex by showing you where these, these ships can disembark at Wouldn't you guys say that's true. Definitely. So, all right. So those, hopefully those things helped. What I wanted to do and what we're going to try to do is end the show with uh, talking about some of the listeners and what their comments are about the show. Eric, you want to uh, read this first one by Caleb?
1: Uh, I have one by a guy named the Ungainly Swordsman. I'll read that.
0: Yep, that's his that's his uh, Twitter account.
1: Gotcha. I just finished listening to this excellent episode of Hex Talk podcast. I would recommend it. to. We don't know which episode that is, so. I would recommend it to any and every GM, whether you're interested in hex crawls or don't know what they are. I'm going to revise this open table BX adventures. I run with my school's RPG club in this direction. Awesome. Well, thank you, Caleb or Ungainly Swordsman. Appreciate the feedback. And that's uh that's why we do this. It's really a labor of love.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you guys can see the sarcasm on his face. No, but seriously, it is, it is. I don't
2: know who this other guy is. Jose, you got anything to say about him? Yeah. Um. This was a guy, his name on, uh, on the, uh, Discord is Balbi, or it um, he, he might have been on the uh, website. But either way, he says, Hey guys, thanks for Hex Talk. I love the episodes on Hobbs and Friends, and I can't wait to listen to the new episodes. I'm a Hex Crawl enthusiast from Brazil. I stream some of my games on Twitch and put all of the stuff in a Medium publication. Medium's a website for people who don't know. So I've been experimenting a lot lately with Hex Crawls all the procedures and dynamics and your insights about the style are a great inspiration to my D&D RC campaign. I think that's rule cyclopedia. Nice. Uh, Perdidos no play in Portuguese. He's running DCC right now. This was in August when he sent this, and in 2 months, which should be right around now, he's running the second season of Oro e Gloria, which is Golden Glory, I guess in Portuguese and uh if you want to check that out it's oro e gloria. So uh you might want to check that out and thank you for the feedback Balby. I hope it goes well and keep giving us uh more information on how it's going. We'd love to hear how uh
1: how your game's running. Make sure we put that in show notes.
0: Exactly. That's what I was going to say. We'll put Balby's uh uh link here in the show notes. Golden Glory is what the 2E retro clone, right?
2: Uh yeah, for Golden Glory. That's right. Okay, so
0: that's what I'm guessing that is. All right. So, uh, Eric, I guess this is it where we've reached our limit here. Do you got any any last words you want to say about this episode? None at all. No, <laughs> no new name for the show or anything like that.
1: Oh, yeah. I, uh, I There's another topic I wanted to cover. We'll have to do it next time. But uh, it looks like G Plus is shutting down. A lot of people are going over to MeWe. Big old school community present there and lots of good content sharing already. So maybe the uh, the next coming of Google Plus and the OSR.
0: There is a Forlorn Shores group and a Hex Talk group at Miwi already. And uh, you can find any of us, Eric Hoffman, Jose Licario, Jason Hobbs, all at MeWe. Get in our contact list, people. Jose, anything you want to say?
2: Uh, yeah, check out Audio Dungeon. Uh, we have a link to the Discord. We have it also up on the Hex Talk website. And come chat with us. We're, we're in there a lot. We're chatting all the time. And we're even starting to run a few games in the... Uh, the uh, audio chat uh, section of uh, the audio dungeon discord. So come check it out and uh, hang with us and uh, get involved in the combos.
0: Yeah, the fantastic Cody M is our moderator and he is always there because he has no life.
2: Love you. Cody M is a badass.
0: <laughs> Love you, Cody. All right. So, yeah, you can, we have a Twitter, which is uh,
2: at Hextalk, right, Jose? At Hextalk Podcast. Okay. At
0: Hextalk Podcast. I have a Twitter feed at Hobbs Indeed or at OSRN Hobbs.
2: And there's a contact form on the website if you want to send us a question and don't want to just set it up in an email. There's a, uh, a form on the uh, Hextalk website that you can use to submit questions.
0: All right. We're talking fast because we feel like we're rushed. So I think I will just say that uh, Hextalk is an audio dungeon production. Thank you. <laughs>
2: This podcast is a member of the Audio Dungeon Podcast Network. For more podcasts, visit audiodungeon.com.